friend uh, Brandon messaged me on letter, like commented on my letterbox review mm. and uh, asked if the the tree with the big honkers didn't do it for me. I was like, damn, you're right. I got to bring this movie up at a full like star rating. Yeah. Yeah. The horny tree. I was reminded of it. Of course, I had to concede that. Yeah, you're right. The movie. I think there's a similar bit good. in Omicord, right? Right, right. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, there is. The lady in the city. I haven't seen that movie. I remember my mom watching it. And I remember particularly that scene. Mm-hmm. Um, a very funny. I don't know that that scene in the book is much different, and like it's just yeah. a very very funny the, way the to interpret that scene in the book. Strangely phallic at the same time. That's, yeah, Keisha walked in on it's that simul- scene, and she's like, "What is this thing?" Right. Yeah. Because yeah, it does have the very phallic form but as well. But it's also and then like a nice little sprout coming out the top. Yeah. To also in it. Yeah, <laughs> and then quite yonic, and I know it's it's um, it's a choice. It's got it all. <laughs> the tree's got it all. It does indeed have all of it, yes. Yeah. Uh, and the whole movie is choices. Yeah. It's insane. Um, I didn't know the Iron Lady went anything like this. I was very surprised. <laughs> well, hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Honor Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film space course. This week's film is a patron, pa- Patreon pick from uh, Mr. Uh, Oh, I just first name our yeah, friend, our friend Taylor. That works. Yeah. Thank you, Taylor. Well, and Taylor, thank you for getting us all copies of Peter S. Beagle's The Last Unicorn yeah. uh, to, to peruse and read at our leisure uh, in, in anticipation of uh, watching this Rankin and Bass film. As an adaptation, that is always interesting to know the source material. And so uh, Dustin lost his. I, uh, <laughs> I listened to the audiobook, which I checked out from the library. <laughs> I'm going to go with Rose lost mine. Yeah, that sounds That's more accurate. Fair. You, do yeah. have a, you do have a goblin in your house. I do. Yeah. I do. Uh, a little I, mythical creature. I'm almost done. I have like two chapters left. So oh, nice. Okay. I did some pretty good work uh, in the last 24 hours on this. Excellent. The ending is entirely different. Oh, yeah. They get to Mordor, right? Yeah, they do. They get Mount to Mount Doom. And- it- they, th- they throw the unicorn in the, in the volcano. <laughs> uh, I don't know about you, Arthur, but I, I really was digging uh, the language of the novel. Uh, like, there is a lot about the book uh, that I dig on. Um, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, so then we'll, I, we'll probably talk about does that Does Taylor have affection for the novel as well? I mean, obviously, you guys I'm know assuming. him personally. I think so, yes. Yeah. 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 Okay, gotcha. I didn't get a, we haven't really had a good chance to talk to him in depth about it. No. I don't know if he has a particularly strong feeling about the movie or if the book's more of a, th- you know, so. Yeah, well, yeah you do, so you guys oh. don't know which comes first for him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. He, he spoke of it as a good adaptation. Mm. We'll talk about that, too. Yeah, yeah, we'll talk. <laughs> we, have di- <laughs> well, we have different thoughts. Um, but I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I remain Dalton, although I am this weekend really trying to harness my Kinergy uh, and, and channel it He's into Colton. the world. No. Colton? No, I, I knew a lot of Coltons, and I don't, I don't, mm, mm, no, nope, no, not on board. Bad memories. Not on board. I, uh, I killed a kid named Colton's Xbox by spilling a Diet Dr. Pepper <laughs> on it in middle school, and he was pissed. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I didn't mean to. Well, one would Obviously, be. yeah, understandably, yeah. though. It would have been a better story if you'd done it on purpose. It would have been. I, yeah. I didn't feel that bad about it. He was kind of an, an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, he was new in town. Hashtag you know, sorry, it's sorry. hard to be new in town. Yeah. He's new in town. And I'm new, <laughs> he in, was town. new in town. Uh, you know who else is new in town? Almathea. Mm. Almathea. Almathea? Almathea. There we go. 
Yes, Amalia is new in town. Um, if you are tuning into the show for the very first time, this is an analysis show, not a review show. And that, therefore, means we are going to spoil the film. Uh, we're going to avoid that for the first part of the show. If you are curious and just sort of listening in and deciding and testing the waters as to your interest in catching up with The Last Unicorn, in case you had not. And so that looks like this. We have a synopsis, which will, again, be like what you read on IMDb or wherever. And it'll let you just know kind of what happens. Uh, but not like... In in the sense of spoilers, uh, you know, let you know what happens. So like Barbie, you know what happens? Barbie and Ken go to the real world. That's not a spoiler. That's what happens. Uh, we do that. Wait, kind. what? Um, that, that's what the movie's about. That's what the oh, movie's boy. about. I don't have to tell you. I'm able to give you that synopsis without having seen the movie. Uh, then we move on to our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which we'll talk a little bit more about the thing that happens in the movie without, uh, while still avoiding the interesting plot intricacies of the film. We then move on to a little game called Expanding the Syllabus, which more likely involves spoilers of films of its ilk, but could give some spoilage if you are familiar with the films of its ilk, and now you know what ilk from which it comes. Then we move on, finally, to our analysis of the show. There's music to let you know we've gotten into that territory in which all spoiler bets are off. So, there you go. That's the rundown, and uh, here we go. We're going to move to that synopsis, but again, before we do that, we do this because of a patron pick, and I have to acknowledge the excellent, excellent new material, the new equipment that we have here in the studio. Yeah, listener, I don't know if you're noticing it, but we're noticing it. Uh, we certainly are, and uh, we're having a very, very good time Thanks, with new patrons. microphones, new headphones, new cables, all kinds of new... Is that a, That's not the new soundboard, is it? No. Okay. It looks like an amp? It's a headphone amp. Do I even know that material? We've had this for a while. No, that we've had. Okay. All of our headphones run through that. I am just... We haven't been using headphones in so long. Yeah. Oh, I my God. Yeah, it's been years. So there's that. So, yes, thank you, patrons all. And if you are a patron of a certain level, you, like Taylor, can pick a movie to uh, impose or delight us with. And I guess we're going to come to the point of the show where we answer the question, is it an imposition or a delight? Do you like The Last Unicorn or not? I go to you first, Arthur. Do you want that synopsis or not? Oh, I, yeah. I was, I got you introduced so, it and then went right past it. I got it. so excited. Um, yes, please synopsize. <laughs> uh, it's a brief synopsis. Don't worry. Uh, a unicorn forgotten by time and man goes on a journey to discover if she truly is the last unicorn there you go. There you go. That's what it's about. And um, did I like The Last Unicorn? Um, I thought it was very okay is where I landed mm. on The Last Unicorn. I think uh, I really like the uh, Rankin and Bass animation. I think it looks really pretty. Yeah. Um, it feels like, and I you know, I don't know the crossovers and histories here, but there are some elements of this that feel very uh, Japanese uh, anime in some of the designs, like the unicorn the character and, designs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the yeah. production is Japanese as well, so there's that. Okay, I was yeah, thinking yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. So all, that makes a lot if of sense. you if you watch the credits, all the uh, names are Japanese. All the animators okay. are yeah, Japanese. Yeah. So I, I was wondering if there was some kind of bleed or influence going on there. Um, yeah, Rankin Bass did a big partnership like that in the '80s. Oh, with, cool. And Thundercats is uh, you know Rankin Bass, but done oh, by Japanese animators. That. Yeah, that explains so much, dude. <laughs> that you just really unlocked a whole animation coaching tree for me that's cool so uh i think all that's really cool um this is a you know really weird place as far as like voice acting and stuff because uh you know we get so much crap to what happened in the 90s with disney but i mean this is like a, an ensemble uh, of actors most of them kind of younger in their careers but i mean jeff bridges they were names Arc, and Mia Farrow. yeah yeah they were coming up and would have been known uh, Chris, uh, Christopher Lee. Mm -hmm. I mean, just a, a really stacked voice cast, which is kind of funny. Angela Lansbury shows up. 
which is really kind of funny to think about in light of that conversation mm-hmm. that happens a little later in the 90s regarding voice acting. Um, I don't know, though. Watching this movie, it just felt like it was missing something. Uh, you know, initially in my letterbox review, I, I, I called it heart. Like, the pieces were there, uh, and it's a fine fantasy tale. But it just felt like it was lacking something to really draw me into it, um, besides just what I thought was pretty strong animation. And so uh, and we can probably get into this more a little later. But the more I read the book, because I, I read about two chapters and then watched the movie because I didn't know if I'd have time. Uh, and then I went back and, and got some more work done in the book. Uh, and as I came to read the, read the book, I, I kind of realized what was missing was a lot of the depth uh, thematically and, and textually of what's going on in the book that's just kind of missing and cut from the movie. Is that more in terms of character development or like the world and the context? I'd say both. I think, yeah, a lot. I mean, thematically even like... Um, you get a lot more of Schmendrick's I like mean, what his whole deal is. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he's a much more complex character. I mean, I think they're all a little more complex except for maybe the unicorn. Mm-hmm. Um but and and even uh, Lear, uh, I think to an extent is as well. Uh, I think narratively, this is a very strong and close adaptation. I th- I think it's smart in the way it, uh, you know, cuts things, blends things, mo- molds things to fit a, a ninety minute runtime. Yeah, it cuts a huge chunk of Lear's backstory, and yeah. I think the film's probably better for jettisoning that. Yeah, I mean, he's mentioned that he's a sort of a foundling. Yeah, there's the like a whole like, like witch that... curse subplot. Yeah, Whoa. yeah, they go to like the town that is yeah. nearest to the castle, and like it's the only place in the kingdom that's thriving because of the witch's curse. Yeah, and they like abandoned an orphan because they knew that if a child was born, that they would probably overthrow throw the king and yeah it's like a whole whole thing and the the book itself it, it has a lot of that depth to it it's really cool like those are the fun moments right and, and we just kind of get the which is common with adaptation you, you sure. mainly just kind of scraping the surface a lot of times uh but for me this book is very satirical it's very meta very postmodern in a lot of ways uh it, it's got a lot of commentary on what is a hero you know the hero's journey the people in the the troop and then all what of is that. truth and what is fiction yeah all of that's really coming out here and it sounds like a some princess bride kind of uh, yeah i think it's yeah, very yeah. very uh i don't know when princess bride is written but it definitely feels at least a front runner for that and a lot in common with that and i think that's what's really missing from the movie is a lot of that sort of depth at heart uh, that's very present here, not to mention some of the more interesting kind of subplot stuff. But mm-hmm. I mean, I get making some of those cuts sure. and you trim your fat and you you combine what needs to be combined. Um, and I think, again, narratively, it's a very faithful adaptation. But I think thematically it it is hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very interesting. You know, Beagle does the, the screenplay as well for this to see where he succeeds and where he kind of misses the mark. Um, so as for me, you know, I, I think it keeps a pretty tight runtime. It, it's hitting all those beats. It's very much like the book, very uh, um, kind of vignette based as it goes from episode to episode in that. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I, it really just didn't blow me away. It didn't draw me in or, or connect with me. So I, I thought it was fine. I'd be interested to, you know, I, I didn't see this when I was young. This is my first experience. I imagine coming into this when I was younger, I may have had a little more um, love and enjoyment out of it. Uh, but as it is now, I am. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. What do you think, um, Dalton? Ar- Arthur is so right, dude. If I had seen this at like eight or nine, this movie freaked my bean. Yeah. Uh, this, this movie is not for kids. And the way that like 
this era is like I, I just I don't know we used to take children kind of more black se- cauldron kind of territory yeah, yeah, yeah. we used to take yeah. children more seriously mm-hmm. you know we, uh, we used to be like you can uh, handle a little a little scratch of the adult world a little you can chip off a little off the block for you well Gen Xers were feral yeah yeah the, the in some ways this movie feels like um uh, it's Alice in Wonderland if Lewis Carroll never did drugs that's very funny yeah. Dude, it's an interesting you should say that because you think of Rankin and Bass animation of as like sort of this being so tied into like pot culture, right? Like especially that that era like 70s and 80s pot culture, like the Rankin and Bass stuff like feels like so I don't know, like black lights and velvet posters and D&D, mm-hmm. like it just feels like so of that era. And this right. does you're so right that this is like I don't know, more tame than some of their like their Lord of the Rings stuff and some of the other Rankin and Bass stuff I've seen clips of, which isn't to say it's tame. I mean, there's a three breasted harpy. There's a, a again, we've talked about the melons on the tree that comes to life and tries to seduce Schmendrick. And here I where I thought they were called knots. <laughs> Very <laughs> it says funny. The prequel to Total Recall is what it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, what else? What other stuff is here? I mean, like the, the whole existential like underpinning of this story is n- so dark and so troubling and really not for children. And that's kind of what makes it a perfect children's story. Uh, because I, I think when a, a fantasy story, especially one for younger audiences is really cooking, it's exposing them to the things that they need to know about, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of those things is it's way tougher to be a young woman than it is to be a unicorn. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is sort of a, an inherent truth of the world. Uh, and, and with, you know, you get the Molly Gru stuff of, the thing that you thought you needed in your life is maybe going to come a lot later than you wanted it to. Uh, and that's, you know, you're gonna have to deal with that. And, and Schmendrick is like a character that is all about self doubt. Uh, yeah. I'm just like really robust characterization in the novel that we get like a, a taste of in the film. But, uh, you know, this is one of those situations where my, uh, an encounter with the source material really did hurt the adaptation for mm-hmm. me. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the songs by America, the band, which are just dog <laughs> shit. I don't care about any of them. It's some easy listening bullshit. That it's I don't such a want. late 70s, early 80s film thing to do. Yeah, dude. Do you yeah. like the Carpenters? Uh, the, the guy from Mandy. I, yeah. th- that's what I thought yeah, of the yeah, first yeah. time. <laughs> uh, God, what is that? The bad guy's name? I forget Josiah? now. No, not Josiah, but it's something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Jedediah. Jedediah. Something vaguely biblical. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's Jedediah Stone now. I, yeah, no, maybe. Yeah. No, I'm I'm thinking of uh, Bridges' character in Iron Man. Oh, there Obadiah you, yeah. Stain or whatever. <laughs> Obadiah Stain. Uh, wow. Clearly, I don't have that strong of feelings about The Last Unicorn. You see how hard of a time I'm having staying on track. Uh, it's I'm with Arthur pretty much. It's it's very fine. I, I think the character designs are more impressive than the animation, which definitely feels like they're kind of... I wish they had animated more. You know what I mean? The the There's a fluidity to some of the animation that's, like, really impressive, and I wish they had had enough money to, like, get that into the entire film because there, there are parts where it does feel like the, the budget's kind of hurting what they're able to put on screen. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, I, an, an interesting film. Uh, really feel like Bridges is phoning it in as Lear. Uh, I think he's the weakest. Yeah. I yeah. think Lee's great. Yeah. I think Pharaoh's, I think Mia Pharaoh's giving a great performance. Um, is it Angela Lansbury who plays Mama Fortuna? I think so, yeah. That kicks ass. Yeah. And in the book, I mean, that, that whole section is awesome. And I think that's probably the best adapted part of the, the, yeah. the, the you know, again, I got to about, uh, to still remain in the realm of spoiler free talk. In the book, I got to about when our, 
core party of heroes arrives at King Hagrid's castle and are sort of integrated into Hagrid, castle life. not Hagrid. Did I say Hagrid? Haggard. <laughs> Haggard okay. is we're, we're mixing our fantasies. Yeah. Uh, Haggard's <laughs> castle, and they, they are like sort of... I shouldn't have told you that. ...integrated into life at the castle. And that's... Yeah. And King Lear, or Prince Lear, starts to sort of form a relationship with a, a new character in his life. And I guess that that's about where I got to in the book. And that's about 20 minutes left of the movie when we get there. So, yeah, they really kind of yada, yada, yada through the end of the book. Yeah. Uh, which I all, you know keep you posted on if i get all the way through the rest of it and what i think about the uh, the ending of the novel itself but uh i do like the ending here i think we kind of go out on a really kind of interesting note that really does despite me not totally going for this movie i think it does kind of tie its themes together in a compelling way and again if i'd seen this as a kid i think it would really slotted itself into my gray matter yeah yeah stayed there because there's some really kind of cool troubling stuff in this Mm -hmm. uh what about you dustin so i watched this with the four-year-old okay and the four-year-old loves unicorns and approves okay um though she was quite sad at times and did um the sort of forlornness of the movie going on sort of was troubling for that child audience there but I, i i do think it is a very good children's film for children um and it Four children insofar as four children in an unprotective sort of absentee mm-hmm. baby boomer parenting kind of style. And there's a lot of that going on uh, with the film. And that, that I think that's fine. I, I tend to approve of that being one of those kids. And so it's fine in that sense. And you, you mentioned the songs being bad. And you're right. They're not, they're not overtly offensive. But there's too many of them. Well, and I them. guess I'm especially annoyed by them because they're used to kind of yada yada, like some of the best stuff in the book. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm not aware of that, but I, I do wish I had more and yeah. for sure uh, of just narrative stuff and, and less singing. And if they're going to do singing, can we have some better singing, please? And thank you. Um, and, and so, but that's fine. Uh, it, I, I thought a lot about... Um, the Bashki uh, Hobbit, mm-hmm. uh, especially, and uh, also a Rankin Bass co-production yeah. there. The Captain Cully character, especially, made me think mm-hmm. of the characters mm-hmm. from from that. Yes, and there's a lot of songs in that, and most of them are great. The only ones that are bad in that are these sort of originals, you know, the Greatest Adventure, da 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 da, da which is horrible, and uh, the sort of effort to, I don't know, to 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 try to get a radio single, but not that hard. <laughs> That that's what <laughs> you know. That, yeah. that that's what it seems like. It's like we're gonna we're gonna try to get you know make the album soundtrack really do things, but not really. We're gonna we're gonna make one, but we're not gonna really work to construct music that's gonna be again sort of radio playable. And so that doesn't particularly work for me. I do think the overall story narrative works uh, as as a good fantasy adventure. It it feels like a really fun D and D campaign. Yeah, you know, like you just sort of create these sort of characters, and this is the yeah. rules, and you've got to escort this unicorn and make your choices, and you've got these characters with various kinds of alignments, like like it, like a lot of this feels like the bones of D anD D, and uh, and it's it's interesting in that way, and uh, a, a lot of fun, but. Yeah, I mean, he's more bad. I mean, and he's Ralph Bashke. Um, That's what it needs. Uh, just to give it whatever that little punch is that it's missing uh, narratively. It, it does seem to be. I don't know if there's a screenplay problem. You know, Beagle comes in on that, and I think that's all fine. I, I really do think it's just making some different choices, scene choices, and what scenes mm-hmm. to put in, and how to sort of go about. Um, 
you know, executing the, the, the total of the picture. It, it, it's very, very good um, as far as being a good time. It's not like one of those things where you're like, ah, I hate myself. But yeah. it's it's it doesn't enter in that realm of classic. It doesn't enter in that realm of sort of lost gem. It enters that it just it goes, oh man, you know, I wish I'd caught this. This is this is good stuff. Yeah. And uh, and Rose again loved it. She loves unicorns and all of that was a, a, a good payoff for that. And she was not disturbed, although we and Crystal looked at each other very, very closely when the tree appeared and we're like, Well, that's um that's something. And off we went. Um, yeah, that'll get shaken loose by a therapy session or a drug experience yeah, as pro- an adult. Probably yeah, so. Something will come clattering out of her subconscious. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I, I, I thought about was, you know, you mentioned it being meta, and I really thought it kind of wanted to be. That's interesting. The, 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 there's so much more of that in the story. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, it really it, it wants to get somewhere. And, and I didn't mm-hmm. really think so much of uh, Princess Bride, but I thought about Stardust. Uh, the new oh, game. yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and how it's got like that sort of classic fairy tale kind of shape, yep. but it's 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 doing something, and it, and it felt like it wanted to, but it didn't really it doesn't quite get there. Well, it, it's not like it's, it like tries and fails. It like it, it just it sort of has it hanging off the edges. Like there's more we could do, but it doesn't do it. And I and I felt myself wanting, I suppose, yeah. in that sense. And it sounds like the novel provides um, that other piece that I was sort of yeah. looking for there. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it's a, it's a great middling effort from a great studio, uh, doing a lot of good work. And, uh, I think, I think it's very pretty. I think it's, you know, a very, very pretty animated film. So I enjoyed that about it. So there you go to listener. Those are our thoughts, uh, regarding the last unicorn as a piece of cinema of itself. We're now going to move on to the part where we play our game, which is called expanding the syllabus. And at this point, Dalton's going to tell you what that's all about. That's right. Dustin, I will do that now. Uh, this is the part of the show where we deliver on the promise of our premise. We are going to talk about the films you would never discuss in a film studies course, and we're going to do it in a film studies type way or an academic type way. We're going to try to create a fictional class that features the last unicorn uh, book or film or both as a foundational text. And then we will bring in other texts that are related or tangentially kind of connected to the last unicorn and, and sort of we'll build out a rubric using our assigned film, once again, brought to us by our patron, Taylor. Thanks, Taylor. Thanks, Taylor. Um, so, Dalton, do you come prepared for the syllabus today? Yeah, I'm, I want to look at, like, the last of their kind stories. Oh, fine. You know, that sort of, that very classic trope. Um, I think we should probably start with how this trope relates to colonization and indigeneity. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we start with The Last Samurai and The Last of the Mohicans and sort of examine those two films and how... They center white characters and stories about white people doing really fucked up stuff, Uh, (laughs) which is interesting, Uh, and and then try to find a way in which the the, the film is framed so that that white character is seeing the titular last samurai or the titular last of the Mohicans and witnessing their 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 adventures and their trials, their tribulations and as a witness to this, this moment in history that they, that they're supposed to be carrying with them. Right. That's sort of what we get out of both of these films. And mm-hmm. I think they're both mixed successes. I like both of these movies. I think Mohicans is probably stronger just cause man's a little bit stronger than Zwick and James Fenimore Cooper probably. Yeah. Uh, I would give the novel helps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, both like cool movies and I think a fun place to start when, when looking at this, this sort of trope and you know what, what it means. Uh, we'll look at the disastrous film Chappie, which yeah. I, uh, that's Chappie. Um, 
I like it. I think it's a funny movie. I, it's an oddity mm-hmm. uh, and does not like totally hang together or work. It runs together in my mind with District um, mm-hmm. 9. Yeah. Whatever that uh, uh, Peter Jackson joint was. Blomkamp. It's a Jackson production. Yeah. But yeah, Blomkamp. Yeah. Oh, that's what you mean. Yeah, but it's also Blomkamp. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's why they bleed together. And really all Chappie, Elysium, and District 9 have all kind of fused together as one movie in my mind because they feel like they could all take place in the same fictional universe uh, at some level. There's just a, a real through line and aesthetic, uh, which I like. I'm interested in sort of the near future aesthetics of Blomkamp's filmography. And again, Chappie is, I don't know, not a successful film, maybe one of the most interesting Chartel Copley performances. Uh, and, you know, uh, interesting to see a white South African try to make a film about oppression towards artificial intelligence and sort of use the iconography of apartheid and, you know, racial violence mm-hmm. in his home country to sort of deal with the science fiction idea. Again, something white storytellers love to do and don't always do super well, but an, an idea that's worth investigating and talking about. Uh, of course, we look at the novel, The Last Unicorn, in conjunction uh, with the the book, which both feel kind of like ecological texts in some ways, you know, uh, that definitely feels like the unicorn is a metaphor for like, uh, could be construed as a metaphor for like the natural glory of the mm-hmm. world, the, or the, the beauty of the natural world, and, or at least an endangered species, just be exactly. obvious with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just, just something that is being harshed by our very existence. Right. Uh, which leads us into, uh, playing with princess Mononoke, uh, and Hellboy 2, The Golden Army, which, again, I think Hellboy 2, The Golden Army kind of links up with that in, indigeneity reading of, of the sort of last of their kind story. And then also Mononoke and, and Hellboy 2 link up with um, the sort of magic of the natural world stuff that's going on in mm-hmm. Last Unicorn. They all kind of link together really interestingly. Um, I've got a, a lot more written down. We could talk about Dogma, Bethany, uh, the character played by, um, oh, my God. Linda Fiorentino, there we go, uh, is the last scion, the last, you know, mm-hmm. blood relative of, uh, of Jesus of Nazareth. So there's tons of these stories. I mean, I, I, I've just barely scratched the surface, I feel like. But I, I think those are that's those are kind of good places to start. Yeah. And kind of examining the, the different variations of this story, because we, we use this trope in a lot of different ways in storytelling. And I, I think it's sort of an interesting one. And again, like opens up like a lot of real world discourse for us to look at. For sure. For sure. Very cool. Very cool. What do you bring for your syllabus, Arthur? Uh, I thought about uh, taking a look at women on a journey. We get a lot of uh, looks at the hero's journey, which are usually framed through the male lens, I think. And so mm-hmm. I want to look at some fairy tales and stories that are about uh, women on a journey and on nice. a quest. Uh, and so I think also alongside this as an adaptation, uh, all of these are also going to have a literary uh, root as well. Uh, and so I think we would start with the aforementioned uh, Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland uh, about this young girl drawn into a world she doesn't know or understand uh, and trying to figure it out as she tries to find a way back home. Uh, from there, we would take a look at Baum's Wizard of Oz and we'd take mm-hmm. a look at Dorothy, who also gets put into a world that she does not recognize little familiar, though, uh, and tries to find her way back home. And you and you and you were there. Yeah. Um, so I think those are fun pairs, uh, with this, uh, I think we'd also take a look at Ella Enchanted. Um, the movie's typically not super well regarded, but again, kind of in the same vein, uh, a young performance from Anne Hathaway there also based out of the book as well. Um, we would take a look at the golden compass, I I think here as well, uh, for a variety of reasons. That movie is very interesting. Um, we might 
also look at the series as well. Um, but I was specifically thinking of the movie, uh, which kind of portrays this idea of a girl with sidekick on a quest. Uh, and then I think to kind of switch gears a, a little harder, uh, we take a look at the Hunger Games, mm-hmm. um, which I think is just a fun uh, place to go. But it's also... It's the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it's also a, it's a lot of things. fun way to look at the way... Uh, children's media has sort of evolved over time mm-hmm. from the fairy tale to the YA dystopian novel uh, mm-hmm. and kind of looking at some of those ideas and maybe why that is so uh, and, you know, kind of exploring that as well, but sort of following this from girlhood to preteen to young adulthood uh, through these sorts of stories and, and the mysteries that that uh, typically seems to go with. So I, I think that is what we would do. We would look at women on a journey. Dustin. What is your syllabus? So I think what I would do is a module in a course that actually Arthur and I have talked about actually teaching at some point uh, where we teach. Uh, we've, we've been thinking to ourselves a lot about the medieval 20th century, how in the 20th century there is this sort of rise and increase in popularity of fiction set in quasi-medieval, quasi-magical kind of worlds. Okay. And uh, so thinking about that kind of thing, and of course, uh, you know, as far as reading goes, you know, you've got the, the, the heavy hitters of Lord of the Rings and that kind of stuff, but also, um, you know, Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen and that idea of the green world and the sort of space outside of the civilized spaces in which there is magic that both good and evil, and, you know, you sort of got to know how to negotiate all of that. And thinking about what, it is about using those contexts to speak to, again, questions of the 20th century. And so, again, industrialization is like a serious question within Lord of the Rings is just an example of that kind of thing there. A space exploration with Lewis's Space Trilogy, which is as much fantasy as it is science fiction. And uh, so looking at the the films that I would look at here is I might do this little animation module mm-hmm. uh, within that. And within that, I, I think I would... Less likely look at the um, Bashki Lord of the Rings efforts because I think we'll look at them in a sort of a different context mm-hmm. there uh, with that. But I think we might look at some other things that Bashki has done in addition to The Last Unicorn. And one of those... Uh, would, You're saying Bashki, but you mean Rankin and Bass, right? I uh, always mix them up too. Uh, well, Bashki is working for Rankin Bass. On this one? Not on this one. Okay. But say, on, I know he works, does he works the for Lord them, of the Rings wor- between Hobbit and Return of the King, which and, they direct. And Rankin Bass is uh, the production house on uh, Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, if I remember right. And then he's a director on the Lord of the Rings, and he's doing a lot of the work on the Hobbit. If he's, I don't think he's gotcha. credited as director. I can't remember now. I looked it up. He is credited as director on... Um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I don't think he's credited as director on The Hobbit. No, he's Rankin and Bass are credited as director on Hobbit and Return of the King. But he's doing, yeah, okay, so, yeah. So he's, I didn't realize that he worked so closely with them, though. And, 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 yes, and so he's sort of there and kind of goes off on his own, and there's a handful of great sort of weird adult uh, sort of Bashki animation films, Fritz the Cat, and lots and lots of fun stuff to be had. Wizard. Uh, Wizard is the one I was going to recommend for the syllabus there, which is um, a, a land of fairies and of elves, and of men mm-hmm. so you see sort of the races of the world sort of uh and again fairies are distinct from elves in mm-hmm. this particular mythology but it's also future sci-fi it is three thousand years after we've dropped the bomb and destroyed the whole world i don't know if you've seen wizards or not but man no but i looked into it when we uh, alex pitched us doing it for our 420 episode oh. uh, our 420th <laughs> episode i should say uh so yeah I've, I'm, I'm familiar with wizard just because it is kind of so famous uh, both like as a work of of kind of experiment, not experimental, but like, yeah, no experimental. Well, yeah. Animation that's not targeted towards children. Mm-hmm. And again, also sort of, you know, this, this Rankin and Bass, Bakshi sort of 
dope culture animation that's kind of predates stuff like SpongeBob or Pee Wee's Playhouse. Even. Sure, yeah, yeah. This, yeah. It, 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 it's a wild, wild time. A better integration of rotoscope and traditional animation in that one than in Lord of the Rings. Nice. I think the Lord of the Rings stuff um, feels a little ham-fisted to me, but I'd have to rewatch that movie to sort of make a strong statement on that. So I, I, I'm leaving room to change my mind. Well, maybe someday we'll cover it. Uh, maybe, perhaps someday. But what I would say is regarding this movie, it, it does this. And it, it, it specifically, which Lord of the Rings is sometimes read as dealing with these sort of Nazi sort of, you know, over Mordor's sort of like the German Reich and the, or the Axis powers. But it goes very, very explicitly in this direction that this person has been inspired by there's some remaining technology from the old world. And they, they've seen some Hitler videos and it's got actual footage from Lenny Riefenstahl's tri- Triumph of the Will that he shows his troops and like, oh, yeah, now we got it. Wow. And it is wild. Um, but very, very interesting uh, in that way. And so I think that's an interesting way to play with that. Um, also, Frank Frazetta is an important artist, you know, for a stylist within the sort of world of fantasy writing. And uh, Frazetta does something interesting where he is uh, very, very well known for his Conan the Barbarian covers. And so, uh, which is almost too old to be medieval, but it's sort of like a part of the world that is just not as far along. And there would be these sort of medieval enclaves elsewhere uh, in the Conan world. And this way in which he sort of creates a world that is both medieval and is sometimes stone age. And so fire and ice is the, the film I think I might look at for that, uh, which kind of combines, which uh, the great character death dealer, um, not to be confused with the comic character, uh, is in that and a great design from uh, Frazetta. And so I, I think just looking at these different animated pieces, I mean, you might also look at Disney's um, adaptation of the Alexander Lloyd story in the Black Cauldron, which is more in the 60s, 70s, but um, still it's in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So it's not as quite as close chronologically uh, to these three pieces. But just, again, thinking about ways in which these stories held a shape for certain segments of the culture. And again, I, I, I do think there is sort of a black light where and yeah, uh, counterculture, counterculture. Yeah. 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 So somebody with a Che Guevara poster in their dorm room. And yeah, this seems to be that kind of realm uh, a little bit in which uh, these sort of movies reside as far as fine. They're midnight movies in a sense, mm-hmm. um, even though they're cartoons. And so thinking about that and how that plays into the mediviality that is uh, an interesting way or an interesting cipher through which to filter ideological, political, um, just social sort of issues of the time and how then to reckon with that. And so um, I would use this with those as a module on the medieval 20th century, uh, which is kind of fun to think about. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got quite a bit longer. I believe now is the time that we get down to business. That's right, your listener, and that business is, as always, analysis. Um, so there are a number of places that we can go with this. Uh, we've talked a little bit narratively as far as storytelling, and we've talked about it as a D&D campaign. We've talked about it as sort of meta. Can we? Do we have anything more that we want to say in terms of it as a hero's journey, as a fantasy story, as something generic, yeah, like, like how that works within the, that frame? I want to talk about sort of the ideas of like fact versus fiction in mm-hmm. this story um to, to that point you were you're just gonna ask and i think yeah we definitely 
we get a couple of different lanes for this, right? Like the, even the, the novel opens with like an introduction about dedicated to people who have seen unicorns and didn't tell anybody or something. I forget exactly what the dedication is, but like it is all this mixture of fantasy and fact that's so interesting, right? We go to Captain Cully and Schmendrick is like, oh, yeah, I, I know about you guys. And in the novel, it's much more clear. He's just BSing. He's like, oh, I found a band of bandits. Clearly, like, I know how they want to be perceived. They want to be mm-hmm. perceived as Robin Hood types. And, and so he kind of spins that yarn for them uh, about, oh, clearly this is what you guys are like. And I've heard tales of you. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, then he conjures up Robin Hood and his merry men and ma- made Marion and all the rest. And uh, it's, um, oh, my God. Mar- uh Molly? Molly, thank you. Um, I couldn't think of her last name either, though. Grew? Grew. Yeah, Molly Grew, of course, is the one that's like, no, 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 Robin Hood's real, right? Yeah. You yeah. guys are the ones that are fake. Like, so there's this, just this interesting, and then again, we we have the Midnight, uh, Mommy Fortuna's Midnight Carnival or whatever, yeah. or Midnight Menagerie, and this these facades. Animals, this is the facades, exactly. Yeah, there's, yeah these there's real, look like real supernatural yeah. beasts, and then there's a couple of real supernatural beasts that are made to look even more supernatural because they yeah because people can't recognize them mm-hmm. as mythical without a little help from mommy fortuna's magic so yeah there's yep. and then we get the get the cat who's like uh speaks in riddles and when they ask him like why won't you give me a straight answer of course i don't give you a straight answer from a cat when yeah, you ever met a cat that gives a straight answer best yeah. line ever so funny dude and like, what a cool character too we talked about him off air he's got his little peg leg and his little eye patch we love pirate well, cat pirate cat is great pirate cat is cool even and the butterflies withholding right i like, like the, yeah the, i like the butterfly character a he's lot fun. it's like a fun little like a, a trickster god almost you know yeah. sort of meeting yeah yeah he's even more fun in the novel they just give it more to do but mm-hmm. yeah it's yeah. all just the same thing just saying poetry and prose and just not in jingles and that's the other thing is like if you told me that peter s beagle's world takes place in the 60s i'd go okay sure like mm-hmm. it's kind of seems stuck out of time yeah there is that you know that there's mentioned the bottle caps and magazines which in my head yeah. i'm, I'm correlating to a much more modern time than what the story also does feel very timeless. Mm-hmm. I think that comes across in the movie a few times, especially in some of the jokes mm-hmm. that Schmendrick has where he's talking about doing card tricks and stuff that feels very modern, mm-hmm. like the sort of parlor mm-hmm. tricks are very kind of Victorian 1800s kind of thing. But obviously this is a much older world. So it, it does that. And, you know, we don't really have an idea of how long, I mean, the unicorn has been, I mean, her running through the woods kind of early on could be centuries. Millennia. Like, yeah. Like there's yeah. no real idea or understanding. She's ageless and immortal like yeah. an elf. Yeah. yeah. And so that's, that's really cool in the book. But yeah, there is that, I had that same feeling as I was reading it. Like this could easily be the 1960s or it could be the 1660s. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Some Ren fair sort of hippies yeah. that she's running across rather than like real. Yeah. Yeah. yeah actually medieval people. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did write down a, a Captain Cully quote. I think this is, I don't know if this gets exactly into the film, uh, but the quote is, one always hopes, of course, even now to be collected, to be verified, annotated, to have variant verges, versions, even to have one's authenticity doubted, which again is like right there with the unicorn stuff, mm-hmm. right? It is, it is all really clever in the way it, it like keeps its central theme yeah. rolling. That's and, the and continuous it, question with the unicorn, right? Mm-hmm. Is who remembers me yeah it, that's an interesting quote you know i mentioned gaiman earlier in stardust yeah. uh, there's a foreword to american gods and he talks a little bit about um the america that he writes about that there are some real places and there are some places that he made up some locations and whatnot but he said but of course at the last statement the gods were all real 
and off you go, <laughs> yeah. right? And yeah. th- that's that 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 sort of you know wanting us to find what Clive Barker calls the more hallucinogenic world, mm-hmm. um, the the much more chaotic world of not just there is uh, something that comes in from the outside and uh, then the status quo is renewed at the end of it, but rather that the world has always been off balance and you didn't know it, and now you have to you're 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 um, you're decentered after experiencing the story and then have to sort of find a way to maintain a place there. I watched a, uh, a video essay about both novel and film. I think the channel's called Why Was That Great? Mm. Yeah, what, what's so great about that, I think, is the name of the channel. But uh, yeah, it's The Last Unicorn, Why Must You Always Speak in Riddles is the name of the video. But they talk about, Schmindrick has this line in the book and, you know, talking about the magician and the role of the magician. And it's mm-hmm. kind of tied into this idea you were just talking about of like, the magician sees that the world is always uh, stuck on the precipice of change. And very much it feels like Beagle talking about being a writer through the idea of magic and writes. It's just, again, he talks about Schmindrick is in this this little blurb he has, um, kind of expresses this idea that the, the world is poised for change and the magician sees it and will bind you with angel logics, as mm-hmm, we yeah. always say. Uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll force the world to be changed and, and we'll recognize this change and point it out to other people. I forget exactly, though. I didn't get the, the quote written down, but it's it plays to this idea quite well, I think. And uh, yeah, go check out that video essay for more because it kind of really gets into this idea of like fantasy and, and myth and, and how it, you know, how, how we should let the magician direct us to the magic in the real world. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, choose to see the the thing beyond the thing. Well, I think there's a sort of fundamental human longing that this is sort of scratching as well, is that um, I, I, I think human beings know that um, the sort of world of, you know, the five senses, that there there's something else. There's there's more at, at, at some level, whether we quanti- call it quantum physics or we call it spirituality or we call it whatever, but there's this sort of sense that there's something weird. There, there are exceptions. There, there is this sort of marginal space. We are accepting what we are being seen because the alternative is far too yeah. terrifying. And, and, but, but we also <laughs> it's all held together by always forces we don't understand. The suspicion of there being somehow more. Again, this is mm-hmm, bringing mm-hmm. back Edmund Spencer and sort of the you know, um, the uh, 18th century, 16th century ideas of the green world, that there's civilization and then there's these other spaces out there that are, of course, wild and barbaric and, uh, you know, perhaps dangerous. But there's also not just a dangerous in terms of there might be marauding bandits, but supernatural that you might find not just the bandits but the ghosts of or the spirits of robin hood that you might find a fairy queen out that way you're making me think of this uh, sketch from the new season of i think you should leave where uh tim robbins is yelling about his neighbor letting a pig with a mask on in his house and for three seconds he thought it was a monster and that there was magic in the world and how it's ruined his (laughs) life and now he has to go back to work (laughs) after the encounter with the magical yeah uh the myth is what you know you're talking about the green world and that's what it made me think of of course is yeah you you bring out the philosopher I'll bring you the low culture. I'll bring you the sketch comedy <laughs> that relates to the talking point. Uh, but yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I, I think, you know, whether you want to call it spirituality or quantum physics or there are forces that we barely understand and are kind of weird to think about, about mm-hmm. particles and things being held together by energies and attractions. And I do think we find a way to with fiction. We find a way to a sometimes control it mm-hmm. or B to find a way to open our minds a little bit towards it. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Sure. And it, it depends on your sort of general openness to the idea in the first place. Yeah. And, but it's again, it's, it's sort of like a real human uh, itch that gets scratched by this kind of material, uh, which is a lot of fun. Um, I thought a lot about the red bull and what the red bull might symbolize other than it might give you wings. 
And um, <laughs> so much more. This is one of the really tough things that the the cartoon, the, the film has to do is literalize the Red Bull, which on the page is a physical presence, but is written about like it's vast and mm. uh, unstoppable yeah. and uh, older than time. Like a, like a cosmic sort of spiritual yes. being. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So it is written in like very eldritch terms. I, I like that. Better. It's cool. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the, the, they really have their work cut out for them in, in bringing it to the screen and you know, they do just kind of literalize it, but they give it this aura that's mm-hmm. very spooky. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What does it represent? Um, I mean, it's tied to Haggard's greed, right? Mm-hmm. His, his need to possess the unicorns because they are the only thing that bring him happiness. He must have them, and the, the Red Bull is his means to his end. Uh, I'm sure there's more about the Red Bull at the end of the novel because they yeah. don't really... I haven't got there quite yet. Yeah, yeah, they don't quite explore the connection between Haggard the movie, and the Red Bull. She just Freddy Krueger's him. Just uh, you have no power over me, and uh, which I, I did read a quick, you know, what else happens in the book to get me up to speed. And I guess, yeah, she chases him back into the sea as she mm. frees the unicorn, so it pretty much goes down fairly Similar. similarly. Yeah. Uh, it also, I mean, I think kind of also has this representation of the, just the modern world, right? Mm. Creeping in and replacing this magic that existed before, and well, mm-hmm. yeah, to bring Mononoke back because into of it. the greed, because of yeah. these people who are wiping out nature's resources or whatever and again i think the unicorn sort of functions as a cipher of an endangered species yeah. which is something yeah. that's very much on the minds of people this time yep. so yeah well and it's yeah of course these the concerns that now it's all we can talk about it you know in this current decade but yeah in these 60s and 70s these are concerns that we're just kind of starting to be yeah, like yeah. oh yeah this sort of yeah Zoinks. green movements were yeah. just now nascent at this point you know and, and the hippies want to get close to the earth just for well and they, for more spiritual reasons than for sort of what ethical survival reasons at this point. I think that's also where we start becoming very aware of the Anthropocene, right? Mm -hmm. We start becoming aware of our impact on the, the the historical record, right? The geological record. Yeah. And, and save the whales is happening at this point. So there is, you know, some of that, you know, at work there. Uh, I was thinking a lot about, uh, Christopher Lee's, um, uh, King Haggard looking into the, the 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 transition that the unicorn is making from becoming uh, from from being a unicorn to Princess Almathea or Lady Almathea I guess mm-hmm. um, I should say yeah. that um, at first he cannot see his own reflection in her eyes and that's how he kind of knows she's not one of us mm-hmm. and then as time goes on he sees it more mm-hmm. and um, he becomes like weirdly aggressive more so like he wants to keep her around, but she's just going to be a person. Now he's going to kill her, I guess, uh, is, is, is the understanding there. And I, it just, it feels like seeing your own image in somebody else's eyes Mm. to, it, it felt like it felt pregnant with meaning that had not given birth. That goes without being fully explored. It yeah. goes unexplored fully. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that that's totally fair because it is a really interesting idea. And again, I'm sure it's one of the things that on the page, there's more. Well, I the, that scene is when I got to where Althea and Schmendrick and Molly Grew like first show up at Haggard's castle and meet with the guards that turn out to be Haggard and Lear. And it's, it is really like mystical and cool on the page, him, him seeing this field of 
frolicking animals in her eyes instead of his image. And it, it similarly does freak him out uh, on the page, same as it does in the film. And same thing happens. Lear kind of calms him down and says, well, she's here now. And he just kind of appeases his son. And that's, I don't know, it's also interesting, this idea that uh, Lear only appeases him for so long. Like he's happy with the son until his son becomes like its own person with its own mm-hmm. autonomy. Yeah, that, and that's, a, that's the thing is like he wants himself. He wants mm-hmm. replication, you know, rather mm-hmm. than individuation, right? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like this, uh, uh, again, to use a word from Tolkien, the sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? Authoritarian unison rather than a joyous harmony. You know, using a musical metaphor there, and that's he doesn't want difference. He wants, you know, sameness, clones. Well, there's this, yeah, there's this bit in in the book as it kind of they spend more time there. They kind of come to realize Haggard seems, you know, he can't be satisfied. Mm-hmm. You know, the the fact that he found Lear and brought him in to have a son, he thought that would give him happiness. Mm-hmm. But he explains it only gave me happiness for a moment, and that is gone now. Mm-hmm. All I have is you know, me and my my keep or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I think that, uh, you know, to your point, there's another confrontation that takes place a little bit. uh, They've been there for, I don't know, months, weeks, whatever Mm -hmm. winter has come and and is going on, uh, where he confronts her, Amathea a little later. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, I, I, I realized from the time, you know, I couldn't see myself in your eyes, but also the way you move, the way you carry yourself is, you know, unlike, you know, and there's this challenge of, she's kind of forgetting why she's there. You know, as she becomes more human, she begins to forget she was unicorn. Mm-hmm. And and he is, you know, frustrated with her because he thinks she's playing coy, that she's messing with him. And he's, you know, it is not my job to remind you of your mission. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot more sort of tension that plays out between them. But yeah, it, it is that idea. I think that he just wants to have a, a heavy rule, right? Mm-hmm. To, to be the one who wiped out the unicorn, to be mm-hmm. the one who, holds you know and he also obviously knows that he is doomed because of this which i mean doesn't come out in the movie as well but because of the witch's curse right mm. as well yeah they really don't i mean that's just kind of totally excised which i get it you know yeah, we don't really have time of, yeah. yeah yeah makes sense but just trying to get it there yeah beagle screenplay is interesting as far as like what he chooses how he chooses to adapt mm-hmm. his own story it's always interesting when when the you know the novelist gets to do their own screenplay mm-hmm. yeah um I don't know. Any any big thoughts that come to mind? Let me look at my notes real quick. Uh, this There's two ideas that I think are really interesting. Uh, one is sort of Lear's inability to win over Amethia with dragon's heads. Yes, sort of like yes. his, his attempts to court her kind of all being thwarted. Uh, and how that love develops between the two of them and where that leaves Amethia when she becomes a unicorn again. Um, so we can talk about that. I also am interested in a, another type of immortality, but mommy Fortuna's like thoughts of immortality of like, I don't care if you kill me. I caught you. Mm-hmm. I harnessed you. I, I made you tap dance it's legacy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you're immortal and you'll remember the me witches forever. will remember. Yeah. 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 The witches will remember you will remember. Mm-hmm. I think these are both really interesting ideas. Well, I think that thing with Lyra going back to kind of earlier talk is, is where it does get to be a little more, kind of subversive or meta in its discussion of heroism, right? Totally. I'm the hero. I'm slaying, you know, I've slayed all these dragons, all these black knights, all these ogres, and she doesn't want any of it. Mm -hmm. And then Molly gets to say, well, maybe she wants something else. Maybe that's not the way to win her over, Mm -hmm. right? Which is challenging that sort of idea, I think, of uh, of chivalry and Mm -hmm. the chivalric code. I even feel bad for killing the dragon. Yeah. Um, Well, they, they, in the 
novel give like a lot of real estate to his him being destined to be a hero, right? Like as an mm-hmm. abandoned orphan and a cursed. He's town. got a prophecy to fulfill. Exactly. Yeah, well, yeah he's Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they they kind of get a lot of mileage out of again, Molly Grew as sort of the the crone, Schmendrick as the magician. Although Molly Grew's like portrayed as being like a middle age. Yeah, she doesn't see that old. Like in the thirties, yeah. Yeah. Uh but you know, it fills kind of the archetype of the crown. Mm-hmm. Schmendrick the magician. At least then, a washerwoman. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. The you know the She's at home washing the dishes. She sees yeah. farther, you mm-hmm. know. Uh and Lear, the classic hero, and Amethia, the classic lady in distress. And everybody fits in an archetype, but the archetypes are all subverted in interesting mm-hmm. ways, kind of throughout. Um and I, you know, Molly Grew is sort of this like tough, tough exterior, sensitive heart is kind of a classic character, but is, I don't know, really compelling to me. Like the the scene where she is beside herself at where she's found herself in life when she's finally met a unicorn is mm-hmm. so sad. It's, yeah. So because it's so late, she, she's, yeah. been, she's hoping she's been wanting and mm-hmm. now now she's yeah, she's she's too late. All the life. all the innocence and joy is gone from yeah. me. Why would you show up now? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and again, you, you think about that, you know, you spend your whole life, you know, believing in elves and stuff in the woods and you never see one. And then like, you know, you're 85 years old and you stroke out and mm-hmm. you know, it seems like that kind of, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, bittersweet kind of situation there. Um, I don't know that we want to, is there anything else big that we want to hit on here thematically? We've already talked about, you know, Haggard's, um, sort of accumulation of stuff i mean there's there's sort of an ecclesiastes kind of bit you know i tried everything and nothing satisfies his mm-hmm. desire for happiness mm-hmm. you know you think a lot about uh the the king solomon passages of chapter two of ecclesiastes for those of you who are following along in your bibles at home and uh <laughs> in which you find him trying all these things you know i got gardens and then i got um, i got wineries and i got you know a brewery and i've got real estate and i got you know i got into you know big screen TVs. I mean, that's not what it says, but you know, I tried all this stuff and I found all of it to be vanity of vanities and just a chasing after the wind. Like there, there seems mm. to be this, like what he's missing is real human connection. Yeah. What he's missing is, um, meeting another human being as a human being and to, to be able to give to and, and receive from that person in, in a real kind of exchange. And so that seems to be the, the, the key source of villainry there for that character. Um, Mama Fortuna's villainry is that again she wants to make her mark and it, again is willing to at all costs at all costs and again not not to care about other individuals and so she runs over everybody if I think Haggard would if it made me happy to be nice to people I would be nice to people because it makes me happy which is not exactly happiness right it's again this sort of um, chasing the dragon yeah chasing the dragon yeah. kind of thing yeah hmm. so I, I think if there's two pieces of that sort of interesting ways in which people pursue um satisfaction you know mm. and like the rolling stones they just can't get no you simply cannot no you, Our, you simply will always fail to get what you want yeah you can try you can try anyway um let's move on and render a verdict now <laughs> some rolling stones references cannot believe we're going out on the stones god help us <laughs> well, it was the 60s it, it, my you, know, you know you're not wrong you're not wrong um so shelf or trash is the verdict that we are allowed to give ourselves um simply whether or not we would put the last unicorn on the shelf or in the trash i go to you first arthur what do you say I don't know what just happened to me. Um, I think that I will very gently put it on the trash pile. I, you know, went almost 40 years without seeing it, and I think I could have went another 40. Uh, and so, but I, I, I like the book, so I'm glad I'm reading the book, because mm-hmm. this is something I'm very interested in. 
Uh, so Taylor, thanks for that. I, I appreciate the book and I've really enjoyed that, but the movie just not doing it for me. So trashing it. Very good. Very good. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, I, I got to agree with Arthur on this one. Novel, very shelfable, very interesting. Read it to a kid in your life or something. Uh, movie fine. Show mm. it to a kid in your life. Maybe uh, cool movie. Nah, yeah, I, I could live without it. You know, it didn't, didn't change the game for me. Not not one that I, you know, I wish I had. You know, I will say, I guess, I, I wish my first experience with this had been as a child. Mm, I guess yeah. maybe the highest endorsement I can give it. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know it's, if it's shelfable unless you have that pre-existing relationship with it. That is fair. That is fair. I will say that the child in my life that got to see it, I'm glad that they did. And I'm glad that it was streaming to be available because I don't think it's very shelfable for that. But if I am able to recover from the brownie or marsh wiggle or hedge witch that has stolen my book, um, if I'm able to relocate that book, I will joyfully place it on my shelf yeah and very likely um it'll be one of the books i read to rosie and so we've we just got the wizard of oz oh nice oh, fun she loves her some dorothy and now she nice. knows all about silver she and, does, and, and you the, know yeah gold. and and then yes the um the the, the bimetal exchange and mm-hmm. all bimetallism and mm-hmm. all that nonsense and early 19th century american politics <laughs> so <laughs> so bizarre um anyway so there you go dear listener those were our thoughts on the last unicorn i'm gonna go now to dalton because he's gonna tell you how you can tell us we're wrong because we probably are about everything usually uh if you want to tell me how i'm wrong or dustin or arthur if you want to tell us what things we're dum-dums about i can't handle it my ego's too sensitive well and you know it's well, true this is why we don't check the cries on the corner in his room all the day just to sit there weeping this is why truth be told we don't check the email as religiously as we probably should uh as for dustin's delicate sensibilities that's right, that's right. Uh, but if you want to send us an email you go to good trash genrecast at gmail.com for any feedback you've got uh hit us up good trash genrecast at gmail.com it's the name of the show you're listening to at gmail uh you can also find us on social medias at good trash media we're not super active on socials anymore but uh, you know you can find us uh I'm somewhat active online. I'm Dollywood Squares in most places. Um, so if you know you want to see somebody promote this show, I'll probably be one of the people doing it. Um, Dustin's not very online, and Arthur's sort of a, a proud lurker. So you know, I, I, I won't, I won't dox them. I won't be handing out their online handles for you, you nasty little freak. I know you want to know what their handles are. Uh, Mine's almost always my name. Yeah, you're or, pretty or straightforward. Cells. Just because it's funny to me. It is very funny. Uh, last but certainly not least, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM. If you want to be like our friend Taylor and pick a movie for us to talk about on the show, as Taylor has just learned, we cannot promise that means we're going to love the movie you pick for us. Uh, but we will do our absolute level best to talk about it in a serious way and and sometimes a less serious way because isn't that part of the fun? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, that's that's what you need to know about getting in touch with us next week. Uh, we're going to be looking at a little Robert Altman film. Isn't that right, Arthur? Uh, That is right. Uh, Next week, uh, we're going to kind of keep this family affair going. Uh, Before I announce that, I do want to just say thanks to a new Patreon uh, supporter, uh, Jacob Threadgill. Hey, thanks, Jacob. Uh, Thanks, Jacob. Thanks for uh, Jacob and I did uh, five-fifths of Twister together for Theater Crude. Yeah, he was was in the the second act that I I did with uh, the Martin Dupross. I once did five-fifths as well. Yeah, I know you did. Now you don't do that anymore. <laughs> like, that's better for you that you don't do that. But yeah, I can have one fifth, which is why I'm allowed to do that. You you have five, and that's why you don't get to. 
Anyway, next week we're going to uh, continue this like little family affair thing that we're, you know, it's kind of a shift for us. We don't do a lot of family movies, but uh, we're going to do it for the next week. Or we can kind of keep the rosy meter going maybe uh, on that. Nope. Nope. Okay, never mind. Uh, unfortunately. Uh, but next week uh, we're going to attempt to uh, reconcile a studio bomb when we eats our spinach. It's Popeye the Sailor Man. Toot, toot. Yeah, so you keep watching. We'll keep talking. We'll see you all next time. Oh.